Hello, I'm Eddie French, and you might recognise me from such icy news noises as... <coughs> Daddy! And who could forget... <coughs> well, the good news is, is that I now have my own podcast. It's called Pick Scraped, and it is a fortnightly sketch show uh, made entirely by me. So if that sounds like the sort of thing you'd like, go to wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it. Thank you. Pick Scraped. You're listening to IC News, the only network bringing you the stories from across the multiverse. Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who shot dead two men and wounded a third during racial justice protests in the US, is cleared of homicide on self-defence grounds. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but from the way things played out, I don't think any of the prosecutors were either. The leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, strikes a defiant tone in an interview with the BBC, in which he admits that his forces may have helped migrants cross the Polish border. Upon hearing that an overweight and dishonest authoritarian with terrible hair was in the building, the corporation's Laura Koonsberg reportedly had to be locked in a stationary cupboard after getting too excited. Coronavirus announces the first dates of its Winter Lockdown 2021 tour. It will begin in Austria before sweeping the continent and then arriving with a bang in the UK about five weeks too late. And finally, the Prime Minister's father, Stanley Johnson, is accused of inappropriate touching by two women, as it turns out that the apple smacks a woman on the arse not far from the tree. Hello and welcome. I'm Sam Gore, scrapping plans for that high-speed northern leg of biting satire and instead replacing it with less expensive local upgrades that will actually be delivered on exactly the same time frame, but we'll pretend you're going to get them quicker, even though you're almost definitely not. Look, we've tried all right, but there's just no levelling up Bradford. It's going to be a Bulbasaur forever, and Bulbasaurs just don't get 21st century rail links. Another week, another broken promise from the Prime Minister that he immediately attempted to downplay, as plans for the eastern leg of HS2 that the Conservatives have repeatedly pledged to deliver were scrapped. The government's new argument is that cheaper, local improvements will deliver better value for money and less environmental destruction, which is precisely what HS2 critics have been saying for, well, fucking years, actually. Which is why it's a little odd that the government have decided it's an approach that suddenly works for part of the project, but not all of it. Still, I suppose someone has to keep pouring money into the ever-growing pool of consultants and developers as the cost of Britain's most expensive ever infrastructure project balloons until it threatens to crush us all under its swollen girth. And there's nobody better at shoveling money into a deepening abyss than the Conservatives. The problem for the Prime Minister is that an apparent betrayal of his levelling-up promises in the North simply add to the growing suspicion among Red Wall voters that he just might be a mendacious little shitbag. The tides of the polls have slowly been washing the varnish off Johnson's carefully crafted public persona since the start of his second job scandal, and this week he attempted to draw a line under the massive shit he'd dropped on his own doorstep. But is there an effective way to keep MPs focused on their day jobs, rather than on the extra cash they can earn on the side? Tom King has been travelling the multiverse this week to try and find out. Thanks, Sam. 
We're into our third week of Operation Slam the Lid of the Ark of the Covenant down before it melts all of our Nazi faces. And it's fair to say that it's not been going very well for Boris Johnson. The Prime Minister has been desperately trying to cut short the embarrassment of the second job scandal. But unlike HS2, that appears to have legs that run the full length of the country. He continues to take an absolute battering from all sides over his fantastically inept attempts to game the standards process in Parliament to his advantage. We're now into day three, or four, of Keir Starmer actually acting like genuine opposition. It's like the Labour Party have finally realised that the best way to shout a clear message about conservative corruption isn't through a mouthful of gargled Tory balls... Starmer's been calling Boris Johnson a corrupt and cowardly liar straight to his face and has been tossing out some genuine zingers over on Twitter. A Starmer zinger, by the way, being very much the lemon and herb of zingers. But that's still far spicier than what we're used to from him. Old Keir's always been absolutely forensic at PMQs, but that's half the problem. He often comes across as clinical and uninspiring. In terms of genuine fire and passion, the leader of the opposition typically presents like Gaviscon on a Nando's. If this is the start of him finally hitting his stride, though, in terms of heat and rhetoric, it's about bloody time. But as much as Boris Johnson would love to make this conversation about Keir Starmer, and has indeed been very much trying to, there's no hiding the fact that highly paid consultancies and distractingly lucrative second jobs for MPs are a scandal that's been very much focused on the Conservative benches. And whilst it's definitely a bit orcs that the Labour leader did some legal moonlighting of his own, the biggest and most brazen profiteers have clearly been Tories, and the public mood on that state of affairs has definitely been reflected in the polls. Boris Johnson had to do something to both cut off Labour's push to ban all second jobs and appease a furious electorate this week. And what we've ended up with is distinctly watered-down proposals to end consultancies and limit other second jobs to an ill-defined and nebulous standard at, at some vague point in the future. A point in the future that he'll clearly be wishing he can kick down the road until it never actually arrives, seeing as it will hit MPs on whose loyalty he relies right in their fucking pocket. The problem, of course, is that without clear boundaries on the sort of second work that's acceptable, the lines become blurred. And with blurred lines, you get dreadful shit like Owen Patterson and Robin Thicke. <laughs> Without clarity, the rules for MPs will be open to exploitation and will just serve to confuse any oversight of them. Clearly, as a general rule of thumb, if there's a glory loophole in any standards process that you can fit a pound coin through, these bastards will sink to their knees and suck what they can through it. And Johnson's proposals don't even begin to address the revolving door of ex-politicians going straight to work for companies they used to legislate for, or potentially murkier conflicts of interest like the holding of stocks and shares, or the way that some businesses have sought to gain access to MPs by funding all party parliamentary groups. (sighs) It turns out that there's actually quite a lot of ways that money can get its hooks into our democracy. So how... How do you effectively police a parliamentary system whose members are clearly very attached to their alternative revenue streams? 
there's an argument that you could pay them more so that the law of business elsewhere is less attractive. But when MPs are already on 80k a year, would that actually work in practice? I've come here to find out. This is Earth Alpha Epsilon Midas Unscrupulous 73, and it's a world where the House has adjusted to the second job scandal by truly levelling the playing field for MPs. Clearly, it was completely unacceptable that their members weren't giving their parliamentary roles their complete attention, which is why the House voted to end second jobs by equalising their wages. (laughs) Obviously, you don't create a level playing field by penalising the rich. Capitalism has taught us that. So the only thing to do that wasn't woke socialist nonsense was to make it so that everybody in both houses now earns the same amount as Rishi Sunak every year. And yes, that includes the roughly 327 friends Boris Johnson has appointed to the Lords in exchange for fancy holidays over the last few years. But that's a different sort of corruption, and we're not looking at it today, are we? So, what's changed in this reality exactly? In all honesty, not a lot. That sound you can hear behind me is the House of Commons literally swimming in cash. But the general behaviour hasn't actually changed all that much. Jeremy Corbyn switched to a slightly more expensive brand of tahini and some of Boris Johnson's kids started receiving a bit more financial support. But as a rule of thumb, earning a shitload of money hasn't really incentivised some of this lot to work any harder for the people. The ones that were doing a decent job still are, and the ones that prefer the adulation of big business and the power that comes with it are still neglecting their constituents. Hmm, weird. It's almost like it's the greed itself that motivates some of these arseholes, rather than the profit margin. Maybe it's just sociopaths we need to try and eradicate from Parliament, rather than the second jobs. I'm Tom King, reporting for IC News. The government aren't the only British institution grappling with an unpleasant scandal. English cricket has also been dealing with one of its own, in the shape of the fallout from Azim Rafiq's experience of institutional racism within the game. This week also saw an awkward controversy within the controversy emerge, like a sort of shit Russian doll of racism, as old Facebook posts made by Rafiq himself when he was 19 came to light. In them, he posted a torrent of anti-Semitic bile, but to be fair to Rafiq, he has at least apologised unreservedly and begged forgiveness, as opposed to opting to investigate himself before turning round and concluding that everything discriminatory he said was just banter. While Rafiq's own historical racism is undeniably bad, there's a definite whiff of discrediting the witness around it suddenly emerging now. Rafiq's own comments don't diminish the abuse he and other less anti-Semitic Asian players experienced, and they mustn't be allowed to derail the reckoning that is now surely due for the sport as a result of their experiences within the game. Here to discuss Azim Rafiq's powerful testimony and the wider scandal now engulfing English cricket, it's our black... um, it's it's Che Burnley. <laughs> it's, it's our what, Sam? It's our Che Burnley. Che, thanks for joining us, you bloody lovely man, you. I was just thinking that before I introduced you, which is why I nearly said it, but that would have been unprofessional, so I corrected myself. Yeah, sure you did. This is going to be fun. I can practically hear your toes curling already. 
Well, I've got no idea what you're talking about, so let's just move on. It's been a pretty scandalous couple of weeks for English cricket, hasn't it? If you've not been paying attention to the general bent of British society, then yes, Sam, I guess it has. But the term scandal implies a certain level of shock or revelation, doesn't it? And I hate to point this out to you, mate, but us bloody lovely people have been vocal about institutionalised racism in sport quite a lot recently. And cricket, with its established tradition of sledging and long history as an upper-class pursuit, was always going to rank right up there in terms of ingrained racism. Cricket might not be on the par with the monarchy in its position bang in the middle of the Venn diagram between racism and classism, but it's not far off. I mean, it's basically croquet with day drinking, isn't it? The brown lads are always going to have to work pretty hard to fit in. This has been no surprise to us. All right, maybe not, but what was surprising, surely, was the disastrous way in which Yorkshire cricket handled Azim Rafiq's complaints. Again, no. We're talking about an institution governed and overseen by white faces, with white excuses, moving to downplay and dismiss allegations of widespread racist bullying. Allegations that, if exposed and punished appropriately, would upend its entire traditional power structure. If you trend even slightly towards the underside of Magnolia on the Dulux colour chart, Yorkshire Cricket's behaviour isn't remotely surprising. It's like that third Hobbit movie. Even though it is, was and always will be utter shite, people of colour in England have somehow seen it a hundred times, because white people keep putting it up on telly. Sorry, you lost me. White people keep putting institutional racism on the telly. Yeah, look, my metaphor ran away from me a little bit there. The point I'm making is that the revelation of systemic racism in any English institution is no surprise for people of colour. And The Hobbit should have been one movie. I'm, I'm still angry about that. Oh, right. I just assumed you were talking about GB News. Yeah, well, in, in that case, I guess my metaphor was fine. If we can, then, let's talk a little about institutional racism in general, because I think, as a term, it inspires some pretty passionate responses, particularly from those who bristle at the suggestion that an establishment they support could be affected by it. Which is another tale as old as time in itself, isn't it? The simple accusation of racism is always more outrageous than the idea that it might actually exist. Particularly now, with our culture war currently raging harder than a drunk Phil Mitchell watching Grant bang Sharon on OnlyFans. But it's that sort of knee-jerk dismissal that constantly minimises the everyday discriminations that people of colour face. And it's a form of denial that always comes from those with power. What was banter? So Michael Vaughan and Gary Balance was clearly humiliating and isolating for Azim Rafiq, to the point where he regularly considered suicide. And when that imbalance of power is challenged by the victim, as it was by Rafiq, and the structure of that establishment takes the side of the offenders, it just legitimises their behaviour even further. Institutionalised racism can be subtle and even unintended, but in the case of Yorkshire Cricket Club, it was anything but. It was the elephant in the room, and the racists in there were telling the Asian players to wash it. You're really not surprised by anything in this story, then? Oh, I wouldn't go that far. There is one thing that has shocked me about all this, and it's Azim Rafiq himself. He's the real surprise here, because more often than not, it's the racist institution that breaks and destroys the man, rather than the other way around. Yeah, his testimony was pretty compelling, wasn't it? Absolutely. R Rafiq has shown more balls than the entirety of the cricket establishment throughout all of this. His playing career at the top of the game may be over, but he's left perhaps an even greater legacy to that sport. That of the man who exposed its rotten core and demanded change for future generations. In that respect, he scored an absolute goal. Don't you mean hit it for six? I have no idea, Sam. I'm black. I know nothing about cricket. Yeah, you've said that before, and I still think it might be racist. And you know what, mate? It is, and institutionally so. 
In fact, the 75% drop-off in terms of numbers of pro-black cricketers in this country over the last 20 years or so is a direct consequence of the white suburban concentration of the game itself. A game whose governing bodies have consistently failed to invest in the sport in urban areas with a higher population of black people, and that's despite the impressive legacy of black players from the West Indies who gave so much to the sport from the Windrush generation onwards. Hang on, I thought you knew nothing about cricket. I don't, mate. But I do know my black history, and I know enough of it to counter any of that reverse racism shit that sanctimonious journalists and anti-woke white people try and pull on me constantly these days. So you can suck my not particularly stereotypical oversized black dick. Well, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> Au contraire, mate. I'm Che Burnley, and I'm bloody lovely, reporting for IC News. Speaking of scoring points by smacking things over a boundary, this week saw ugly scenes at the Polish border as... Oh, sorry, that little jingle means that I've just won the award for most contrived segue of the year. Thank you, thank you. I'd, uh, I'd like to thank my parents, my siblings, and of course, my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Just kidding, he doesn't exist. This was all me. Sorry, we were talking about the Polish border and the growing row between the European Union and the authoritarian leader of Belarus. Alexander Lukashenko has been accused of deliberately funnelling migrants to the Polish border in order to antagonise the EU, with Poland accusing Russia of leveraging the situation for political gain. As always, here at IC News we're committed to true impartiality, and we don't want to just give you the news through the typical Western prism of the mainstream media. To that end, our Russian correspondent Alexander Notobot has been investigating this story, and he has a rather different view of what's really been going on in Belarus. Hello again, fine English listeners. It is I, Alexander Notobot. Russian journalist of high regard and definitely not black ops agent of secret services. Some weather we are having recently, yes? How is your mother? And other English chit-chat phrases. It has been far too long, my friends. I have missed you all like the Cossacks miss Ukraine. <laughs> Just a silly little everything but girl joke for you there. Russia is not at all interested in Ukraine. Quick, look over there! Yet, my friends, no pushing, please. I have stun grenade for everyone. Here, for you, and for your daughter too. Keep marching, please. That's a good refugee. Oops, sorry, listeners. I was just talking to my dog. I call him the Fuji, for I am big Lauren Hill fan. Strumming my pain with his fingers. <laughs> know how that feels, Lauren. Um, I mean... I would know how that feels had I ever flayed man's arm to expose nerves and then twang them to extract information, which I have not, because I am definitely journalist and not former KGB. Phew, think I got away with that one. But if I can be serious for a moment, I do have very real and important reason for big network comeback, and I must talk to you once more this week. It appears that once again, your media and establishments are poking Russian bear. This makes Alexander a very sad face, for he wants a world where all peoples can get along. A world where migrants are treated with fairness and dignity, and Russia does not get blamed for crisis on border between Poland and friends in Belarus, or for testing new anti-satellite weapon. 
<laughs> and making cosmonauts on International Space Station too big shit in space trousers. Honestly, you would think at the recent climate conference, Western world would be happy that the Russian government is now upcycling old satellites. We turn broken old bit of sky junk into big flecks of Russian muscle. When you think about it, it's really very woke and socially conscious. Okay guys, calm down please, I am starting to run out now. Not everyone can get a stun grenade. You'll have to make do with Blick, okay? Move along now please, thanking you. I will tell you what is not woke though, English friends, turning innocent migrants into political pawns. Crisis on Polish border is now turning violent, with troops hurting clashes and big Polish military presence on border with Belarus. Yet your establishment tries to point finger of blame at Vladimir Putin. Um, hello please, can I speak to Mr. Common Sense in the media? I would like him to explain to Poland that actually they have obligation under international law to allow migrant crossings. Oh, did you forget? That's convenient. And what's that? You'd rather make Russian bogeyman and Europe big noble good guy. Oh yeah, that seems super fair. After all, it was definitely Russia who created migrant crisis in first place by starting big illegal war and fucking up Middle East. Thanks, Western media. Bye bye now. Ta. And you think we are the propaganda pushers. That's it, everyone. We're all out. You will have to wait for next shipment, please. We promise once you throw all the bricks and stun grenades, next one will be blankets and pot noodles. Honest. Sorry about that, friends. The Fugi is big silly dog and very demanding of attention. The point I am making is that you in the West are once again allowing yourselves to be distracted with nasty anti-Russian sentiment, this time pushed by Poland. Threat from Belarus leader to flood Europe with drugs and migrants is nothing to do with us. It is response to sanctions which you in West have imposed on him for just trying to have free and fair election in which he gets 110% of vote. You should see Russian election, that's not even big margin. Honestly, you in Europe are a very suspicious bunch. <laughs> it's not like Russia can leverage situation by pressuring puppet Belarus leader to ease crisis in return for speeding up Nord Stream 2 pipeline certification with increasingly desperate Germany. And it is not like whole crisis is convenient distraction from major Russian troop movement on Ukraine border either. Silly Western friends. Jumping at shadows like Freddy cats. So you see, it's nothing to worry about. Europe needs to start taking ownership of own mess. Great leader Putin does not help Lukashenko pressure Europe in pursuit of Russian interests. Any claim otherwise is vicious Western lie. Or I am not definite journalist, harmlessly walking dog in field that is nowhere near Polish border. Okay, Fugi, fetch. Huh. <sighs> I am Alexander Notabot, teaching good boy Fugi to do clever Russian tricks reporting for IC News. Oops, sorry, just got to move this rather large sack of rubles away from the microphone. Alexander's completely fair and impartial report brings us to the end of our broadcast. We'll be back again the same time next week, but until then, we leave you, as always, with the headlines you may have missed. 
The QAnon shaman is sent to prison for his role in the Capitol riot and vows to live like Gandhi, although quite where he thinks he's going to be walking for the next 41 months is anyone's guess. The former editor of the Daily Mail, Paul Dacre, drops out of the running to become the next chair of Ofcom, as he realises that the role would occasionally involve being exposed to daylight and garlic. Kamala Harris is due to become the first woman to hold presidential powers, as Joe Biden will sign them over to her as he undergoes a colonoscopy. Apparently, after promising debt relief for college students and an orderly withdrawal from Afghanistan, the president has been feeling uncomfortably full of shit recently. And finally, the band Brass Against apologise after their frontwoman urinates on a fan's face during a show. Asked why he volunteered for it to happen, the fan reportedly said he saw an opening and took it lying down. You've been listening to IC News. Thank you and goodbye. me, Danny Sutcliffe. I'm here today with a right bargain for you. And no, it's not just the mystery me I've got in the back of my van. Although that is also primo stuff, so meet me behind odd bins and flash your full beams if you're interested. If you haven't joined our Patreon yet, we've got a special offer for you. Sign up now as one of our early bird supporters and you can get access to all of our exclusive content for just £2 a month. If you want bonus podcast sketches, compilation episodes and ICU stories, this is the cheapest you're ever going to get them. You've got to be quick though, this deal is limited to the first 500 patrons and they'll get snapped up quick. It's the best way to show your support for the show and you'll be helping us to grow moving forwards. As always, thank you for all of your support and we hope you enjoy the show. And no, it's not badger me. And if Brian May tries to tell you otherwise, he's a fucking liar. <laughs>